Well, good morning. So there is, uh, in all of Scripture, there is one passage out there that irks me more than any other passage um, in the entire breadth of the Bible. And uh, you're like, right, wow. Right. Here, here it is. Very simple. First, or 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So every single verse in Scripture, all of it, every single word, every letter, every dot and tittle is breathed out by God, and every single word is profitable for all of the things. It's not like, well, some are good for teaching, some are good for... Every single thing we read is good for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. So when we read scripture, what this verse says is that every verse of the whole Bible, like a random verse about shellfish in Leviticus, somehow is useful to teach us, to reproof and correct us, and it helps train us to be more righteous. So we can read any verse of scripture and we can somehow expect that the Lord would use it to help us become more like him as we read. Now, that's great in theory. That's a great thing, right? It's beautiful and obvious in some ways, right? If the God of the universe authored scripture, if the, if the word of God is not just a bunch of smart guys that are dead now having written stuff down, but if God is responsible for all the words and he is the creator of all of the universe and you and I, like he literally breathed you into existence in your mother's womb, then that kind of is an obvious statement, right? Like, it would so then make sense that every single thing in this book is more significant and more important than anything else you read, right? Now, anyone here read every word in here and, like, before you read any other books? No, right? Because it's, it's hard. So while this is true, it's also a terrifying verse. And here's why. There are verses and passages and stories inside of scripture that are terrifyingly weird, complex, difficult, disturbing, just downright bizarre, right? If you're honest, right, maybe, maybe you've been told that you can't feel this way, but can we just all agree that every one of you who's read this in any kind of consistency, you've come across stuff that makes you go, what? Like, Either you don't understand it, and you go, I have no idea what this is, and you generally just skip it, right? That's why most people that start a Bible and a year plan do great until they get to Leviticus, and they're like, what on God's earth is this all about? And they give up, right? Or you think you understand it, but it disturbs you, and you're offended by something that God says or does in Scripture, and then it causes an, an anger, and then you kind of question if God is who he says he is, and, right? It's all throughout this text, there's so much in there. There are parts of the Bible that make God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit seem perhaps even evil at first glance. Right? Raise your hand if you've encountered a passage that makes it seem like God is, God is evil. They're in there. It's okay. If you go to seminary and ask that question, every seminarian will raise their hand. You're not, you're not blaspheming by raising your hand saying there are passages that make it look like God is evil or confusing or doesn't know what he's doing or at least contradictory, right? And, and so 
Some of those hard to understand things are just hard to swallow, right? Some of them we have to address and deal with because they tell us some hard truth. Some of them we just look at and say they're weird, right? And so for the next few weeks, for about seven weeks or so, we're going to have a series that's a little bit unique. It's called Problematic Passages. And we're going to spend each week in complete isolation from the other weeks looking at a specific problematic passage inside of God's Word. And the beauty of this is that these are all passages that were submitted by you, our wonderful members here at Stowe Press. Uh, if you get emails and you've heard me talk about this, sometime last fall is the first time I sent this out. I sent it out a couple weeks ago, maybe a month ago or two. Again, I asked you guys over the months to submit to me verses that you think are confusing, irritable, not understandable, bizarre, weird, and, and you just really want to know what the heck is that about. And so every single verse that we bring up in the next seven weeks is brought by somebody in this, in this congregation, whether they're online or in person, who thought that they would be worth looking at. And they were right. They were. Right? And so when you hear your verse, maybe you're online and you go, oh, I'm going to tune into that. Um, when you hear it, if it wasn't your verse, it gives you the freedom to say, look, I'm not the only one who thinks this is crazy. Right? We can all be together in agreement, but for the next seven weeks, we're going to spend some time looking at these verses. And this morning, we're going to dive straight in, and the category for today is that of the bizarre. It's not necessarily a hard, this isn't like God goes on a genocide or anything like that, although we'll deal with some of those passages as the weeks go on. But today, I would put in the category of just bizarre. What is going on? Our passage this morning deals with Moses in the book of Exodus. And it deals with Moses in the book of Exodus before he goes in front of Pharaoh in Egypt, there's some passage that, that we see in the middle of Exodus 4 that is just really weird. And so this morning, I'm going to invite us to stand in reverence of God's word, even though as you're reading it, there's a part of you that's going to be like, huh? Right? What's there to be reverent about? But stand, let's stand as we read the word of God together. Um, this is in Exodus 4. I'm going to read it entirely. The verses, by the way, when I first bring them to you, I'm going to give you the exact references that were submitted before we kind of look in the context, right? So this is the exact verse that was submitted. Exodus 4, verse 24 through 26. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him, him being Moses, and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he, the Lord, let him, Moses, alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood, because of the circumcision. The word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Even though we're kind of wondering, hmm, all right, have a seat. Okay. <laughs> I love the faces that are coming through in this one. So, at first glance, we have Moses on the way to Egypt, right? He's heading to Egypt, and he's going where God is asking him to go, because what is the Lord? He calls, we, most of us know he calls Moses and says, go to Pharaoh, say, let my people go. So he's on the way to Egypt, and he's making camp, and the Lord meets Moses on the way to doing what God asks him to do, and it just says that all of a sudden, the Lord wanted to kill him. And then the next thing we hear is Zipporah, who the heck is that? We'll find out in a second, grabs a knife, cuts off the foreskin of their son, and puts it on the feet of Moses, and somehow then the Lord decides to no longer kill Moses. And everybody just kind of moves on. Right? That's, that's the passage. He just, it's, just, it's just 
That's it. The next thing that happens after this is it goes and says, the Lord then spoke to Aaron, and it just moves forward. Moses then meets Aaron, and you know, we'll get into the context a little bit later. But one of the things that's really hard about this passage, and why we kind of wonder what the heck is going on in here, is because this passage doesn't seem to fit even when we read it in context. The, the verses 24, 25, and 26, if you pulled them out, the rest of the account in chapter 4 would make complete sense. It doesn't seem to add anything. It doesn't seem to be provoked by anything. There's no, therefore, the Lord was angry. There's, there's no rationale given. It just sits in Exodus 4 as kind of a, by the way, as Moses is going to Egypt, the Lord just decides, I want to kill Moses. And then somehow, cutting the son's foreskin, the wife goes in and cuts the son's foreskin, puts it on Moses' foot, and then the Lord goes, never mind, we're good. And that's the end of the story, right? And so we're going to look at this, and we're going to draw some meaning from both of that time and today. And the way that we do this is by looking at the passage first in isolation and seeing how much can we get out of just this small little passage. And then we look at it in the context of Exodus 4 and 5 and see what's happening before and after and why the Lord might be angry. And there's all these questions that we have when we read this, and we'll seek to answer them. And we'll actually learn something about how the Lord wants us to live from studying foreskin. I promise you, okay? So let's dig into it. First, inside the passage, we open with the Lord seemingly wanting to kill Moses, right? By the end of the passage, he relents and doesn't kill him. So whatever happens in these three verses somehow satisfies the anger of the Lord enough to relent from killing Moses. It doesn't say the Lord's anger was kindled against Moses or he wanted to deal with Moses harshly. He like legit wanted to kill him, right? And so he goes from killing him the act of foreskin cutting by the wife, by the way, Zipporah is his wife, right? If you didn't know that, that was Jethro's daughter that he gave to Moses in marriage. And so Zipporah is his wife. Moses is about to be struck down by God. Zipporah steps in. She grabs a knife. She cuts the foreskin. She puts it on Moses' feet. And the Lord relents. And so we know that it was the act of the cutting and the placing that causes the Lord to relent, right? We can also gather from this passage just by itself that God is mad at Moses, because his son is not cut. Right? The word that we would use is circumcised. At the end of the verse, it even says that, right? The bridegroom of blood, she said it because of the circumcision. So what Zipporah is doing, we can learn just by reading the passage, no context, that what she's doing is she's performing a circumcision on her firstborn son, and that act of circumcision satisfies the Lord. So we can learn that the issue that God had in this passage was that the son wasn't circumcised. We don't yet know why all of a sudden. We don't yet know why when the son was born, somehow circumcision didn't come up and the Lord didn't say anything. We don't know any of those things. But we know that God wants to kill Moses. The son isn't circumcised. The son gets circumcised. God's now good. And he's happy and we can move on with our lives, right? But why this death-bringing level of anger? Right? One of the things that's confusing about this is that Moses is kind of a sinful guy at times. Right? Like Moses murdered somebody. God doesn't really like people that murder somebody. Um, when the Lord first appears to Moses and calls him to go, we have all kinds of passages that talk about why the, you know, Moses is trying to get out of going where God wants him to go. He doesn't want to be sent. He refuses. He tries to talk his way out of it. He kind of swindles his way by talking about the fact that he's not eloquent. There's all these things that, that Moses does that you would think would make God more angry. But yet, when those things happen, the Lord doesn't seem as angered with Moses as here, right? 
It's as if you were at your house growing up as a child and you, you, know, you, you lied to your mom about a party that you had when she was gone and she, she got kind of angry. But then you, you, know, you put a little bit too much salt on your food at dinner time and she like stabs you in the back. <laughs> like that's the kind of threshold. It's a weird overreaction at first glance, right? And so why this death level of anger? Well, let's, let's look at some of the context of this passage, right? When we look at the beginning of, of Exodus 3, what we have is the calling of Moses. If you are unfamiliar with the Moses story, you know, it's possible if you're relatively new to the church context. Um, the Egyptians had enslaved the Israelite people. Uh, Moses was born an Israelite at a time when Israelite babies were being killed. And so Moses' mom puts him in a basket, sends him up the Nile after, after a few days of, of having, you know, having had him as a son to make sure that he stays safe. Um, he is found by the servant of the Pharaoh's daughter, and the daughter ends up taking Moses in to raise him as her own. And so he essentially grows up as the grandson of that Pharaoh, right? And, and becomes kind of an Egyptian by association. No one knows in the Egyptian world that he's, that he's an Israelite. He's raised as if he's Egyptian, and he's raised in a pretty wealthy context because he's part of the family of Pharaoh, Right? So he has a great upbringing from an economic standpoint. He has all the things he wants. He's educated. He's trained and all these things. But he's kind of an Israelite. And so when he grows up, he sees the Egyptian people mistreating Israelites. And he steps in and he kills one of the Egyptians to defend his people. And then as a result, flees away to Midian, to an area called Midian. He encounters a man by the name of Jethro. He ends up working for Jethro, and Jethro ends up giving him one of his daughters for marriage, and so he marries into the family. And so Moses spends roughly 40 years as a Midianite outside of the, the land of Egypt, away from the Israelites, completely in a different context, in a different land, in a different tribe, for 40 years, four decades. He's gone. And he takes a wife that's Midianite, and he has children, and he's doing the work that Jethro has him doing, and he's living the Midianite life. And then in, in Exodus 3, we have the burning bush incident. The Lord calls Moses from a burning bush that burns but doesn't burn up. And what does he say? Moses, take off your shoes, for you are on holy ground. He says, I'm going to use you. I'm going to send you to Pharaoh in Egypt, and I'm going to have you free my people. You're going to go to him. You're going to say, let my people go. I'm going to harden his heart. And we're going to go back and forth a whole bunch. And eventually, through a bunch of plagues, I'm going to cause Pharaoh to free my people. And you're going to be the one that leads the charge. You are going to be my leader of God's people on earth. And Moses' answer is, well, I'm, I'm not a really good public speaker. I, 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 I don't know if you probably use somebody that's better than me at this. Right? How many of you are that? Like, could you pray for the service? Well, I'm not really a good public prayer. I don't know why you want to use me. Or I'm not really that great of a musician. Why would you want to have me come up and play? Right? Like, we've all played that game. We've all been Moses in that account of like, well, there's people better suited for this. Why, why are you calling me to this job? Well, sometimes the Lord calls you to something. And yeah, there might be somebody better at it than you. But guess what? The Lord wants you. He calls Moses. And Moses refuses to go. And the Lord wrestles with him, and eventually Moses says, okay. So in Exodus 4, before we get to our bizarre passage for today, Moses goes to Jethro and requests permission to leave because Jethro's the patriarch of the family. He's just doing good diligence. And we know that Moses, when he leaves, expects not to come back because he takes his whole family with him. He packs up everything, 
He grabs his wife and his, and his children, and he starts to move them back towards Egypt. Right? Everything by the book, doing what God wants him to do. And then he encounters the Lord in this story in full-blown anger. Right? The Lord is gracious with Moses and deals with him patiently up to this point, even though he shows disobedience. Now, immediately before our passage, we see Moses agreeing to go back to Egypt, right? And so we would expect that the next thing is, well, when he arrived in Egypt, this then happened. But no, we interject this passage, this weird thing for the day. Now, following this passage, after all this I want to kill you stuff gets sorted out, it immediately pivots, and in chapter 5, the first thing we read is, for the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness and meet Moses. So Moses then keeps walking, he gets to Egypt, Aaron, you know, who becomes the high priest, goes out to meet him, brings him in. He meets with all the Israelites. He performs some signs and wonders. The Israelites are in awe. They agree to follow him. And then the next thing is he goes to Pharaoh. So the, the story right after the weird passage is Moses is fully in the ministry at this point. Right? He's God's ambassador. Like Within a couple sentences of, I want to kill you, Moses is now in front of Pharaoh saying, let my people go in the full swing of ministry life, right? Be like me, like my first day as pastor, you know, the Thursday before, God wants to kill me, well, and then the next morning, I'm preaching and doing communion for you all, right? Gets right into it. There's no break there. There's nothing that happens in between. And so here's, here's what we have to understand. The question remains, why was God so angry with Moses? that he wanted his messenger, his chosen person, to free all of Israel dead. And here's a text from Genesis that might help us answer that question. Here's what it says. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant and your offspring, or you and your offspring after you throughout the generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or, brought or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. He says it like six times. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male, this is the key, who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. That one, he has broken my covenant. In those five short verses, there's like six reminders of you shall circumcise every single male. I don't care if they were born an Israelite or if you bought them and made them an Israelite through slavery. However they come into here, every male is circumcised, right? The lineage went through males. So, yes, we can talk about, like, why aren't females, you know, circumcised, and we can get into that. But females were into the covenant through the family line because everything's, everything was patriarchal at that time. So every single person is to be circumcised. This is the way that people will know that they are my people. It is the mark. When you see somebody and they're not circumcised, they are not part of God's people. When you see them and they are circumcised, that is the sign they are part of God's people. So every male, eighth day, circumcised. So we can see very much that circumcision is not something we generally consider part of Christian culture, but it was everything during this time. 
It was the singular identifying mark of being part of God's covenant people. And so every good Israelite living in Egypt would have been circumcised as a male on the eighth day of their life, including Moses. We can assume that Moses was probably circumcised before he was sent up the Nile. We can assume. We don't have necessarily like a, we don't know, but we can assume. However, Moses chose not to circumcise his son. We We don't know why. But we know that in verse 14, the promise is that those who are uncircumcised will be cut off from the people of God. They would not be considered to be part of God's people. And so now, as a son of a Jewish mom, Moses being circumcised, he spent 40 years in Midian, and for whatever reason, he didn't circumcise his son. Now, we don't know why. We can make some assumption. Uh, My best guess, if I had to, would be that either A, after 40 years of being a Midianite, he just didn't remember or didn't think about it, because it wasn't part of the custom of the Midianite people. He had become kind of one of them and, and never got around to it, or maybe just straight forgot, you know, um, the way we might forget to get the right life insurance policy, even though it's really important, right? Or, more likely, it's that because he was in Midian for 40 years, he thought of himself and his family as already having been cut off from God's people anyway. So why circumcise? Right? I'm not with God's people. I'm not part of God's people. I have fled God's people. I am cut off already. The punishment for not keeping the covenant is you will be cut off from my people. Well, I'm, already, I'm living the punishment. Like, the punishment of God is my life already. Why would I go through the ritual to prevent the thing that I'm already living through? possibly likely the reason for not having circumcision. Either way, Moses neglected to keep the covenant. Perhaps while in Midian, maybe this wasn't a huge deal to God in that time. We don't know. Why was the Lord not angry on the eighth day of his son's life? Why didn't God come to Moses when his son turned eight days old and said, hey, um, there's a thing you're supposed to do today and you haven't yet? Right? Well, we know that the Lord wasn't really talking to Moses a whole lot until we get to the burning bush incident, right? And so the Lord's presence was kind of removed from Moses. He was out doing his own thing. But what changes from the 40 years in Midian to right here at the camp before he's about to enter Egypt? The lack of circumcision all of a sudden becomes a deal-breaking breaking of God's covenant, and it makes him angry, and it's that for two reasons. Number one. Circumcision was a sign of God's holiness. Right? The word holy means to be set apart. Circumcision is was set apart God's people. And so Moses is about to go be part of God's people again when he wasn't before. And there's a firstborn son, uncircumcised, that blatantly violates the rules of the Lord and the covenant that he makes. Right? I will be your God. You will be my people. You will do your part to demonstrate to me that you are my people I will do my part by being your God and all the privileges and benefits and love and grace and care that come with that. He's about to go rejoin the people, but his family is not keeping the covenants of the Lord. And God can't have unholy in the holy. The second reason is that Moses was going to be the leader of God's people. And leaders are held to a higher standard. They are. If he wasn't going to obey the most basic 
principal covenant that the Lord laid out for the people of God, how would you expect to be seriously taken as a leader of those people? How are you going to take them seriously? Think about this. Imagine if you were to find out tomorrow that I'm having an extramarital affair. And then the next day, you come in with your wife for marriage counseling, and I start to talk about all the ways in which you have lust in your heart that you need to work on. All the while you know that I'm having an extramarital affair. Are you going to take me seriously? Do I have any clout whatsoever in that, in that counseling session? Do I have even the most remote leg to stand on? Do you care what I have to say? No. Right? Leaders are held to a higher standard, like it or not. Moses is about to become the leader on earth of God's people. He is going to be the representative that stands before Pharaoh and says, these are God's people. They are mine and they are the Lord's and you are to let them go. Right? And we know that because in 5, when he gets to Pharaoh, here's the words that he says. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. The first thing Moses does when he gets to Egypt in front of Pharaoh is he actually says the word, thus saith the Lord. Right? He is speaking directly for God to Pharaoh. It is as if the Lord himself is talking to Pharaoh and saying, let my people go. He is saying that with the full authority and weight of God's word behind him. And if you're going to be that person, if you're going to stand up and you're going to speak with the authority of God's word behind you, if you're going to open as a pastor the book of the Lord and you're going to preach from it to people, there is a standard to which you are to be held. Moses was not holding to that standard. And so he is on the eve of entering into the people of God and taking over the leadership of those people. And he is not keeping the most basic of God's covenants. And so God says, dead to you. I'm coming for you. That's it. God isn't demanding perfection of Moses, but he is demanding that if he's going to lead, he's going to keep the most basic rules. We know he doesn't demand perfection because Moses is a coward and he's gracious. Moses murders the guy and flees and he's gracious and he uses him anyway. The Lord shows nothing but grace to Moses, but he is going to hold him to the standard of leadership. Right? And so from there, we see Moses' wife get involved. And again, we don't know why, but one of the things we can probably assume is, you know, when you ask the question of circumcision happening, well, why didn't Moses circumcise his son? Why is it the wife? Well, maybe the Lord is starting to deal harshly with Moses. We don't know how he intends to kill him or if he had started or what. We, maybe, maybe Moses is sick on his deathbed. Maybe he struck him ill or something and he's unable to move on his own. For, we don't know those reasons and it doesn't really matter. But for whatever reason, one of the few things Moses did really, really right, and husbands, you can relate to this, is Moses married up. And on the verge of dying, his beautiful, loving wife steps in and does the right thing. She grabs the knife, the flint, she, she goes to her son, she circumcises him, and she takes the proof of the circumcision to the feet of Moses before God can do what he said he's going to do, what he's come there to do, what he's set out to do. She says, look, look, here we go. It's done. And then we hear that the Lord relents. And that's why she says, you are a bridegroom of my blood, and she said it due to the circumcision. Here's, here's the proof. Here's what you need. It's done. It's fixed. We're sorry. Please have mercy and grace upon us. And the Lord relents and everybody gets to move on with their life. If you have a spouse that you feel like you married up, who every once in a while in the midst of your stupid stepped in and fixed it before it got bad, you know exactly what's happening here. 
And so praise the Lord for Zipporah to save Moses from a pickle. Now, Moses is able to go back into Egypt and begin his ministry intact with his character restored, with everything the way it should be. And as we know, the Lord uses Moses then in mighty ways, right? Now, there's one other thing in this passage um, that, that is really neat if, if we just know to ask the right question. And here's the question. The very opening of it, the first thing we hear, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. That's a weird phrase. Because the Lord sought to put Moses to death. Like the Lord was seeking to kill Moses. Now what we know of the Lord is throughout Scripture, and some of these passages we're going to deal with in the next few weeks, the Lord kills a lot of people in Scripture, does he not? Right? If the Lord wants you dead, you're dead. But what we hear here is not the Lord met and killed Moses, but the Lord was seeking to kill Moses. Since when does God seek to kill? As if somehow he's like trying but not succeeding? Really? That's a weird way of opening this passage. If the Lord wanted Moses truly dead, guess what? Moses would be dead already. Right? It's, like a, it's like a really good killer in the movie when it's like, don't kill me. Like, if I wanted to kill you, you'd already be dead. If God wants you dead, you're dead. If God wants you in this room dead, if you're living right now, God doesn't want you dead. Because if he did, you wouldn't be walking out of here. You'd be keeling over right now. Right? Clearly, the fact that you're still looking at me with intact eyes and your brain works means that God wants you to live. Otherwise, you wouldn't. Because he's God. And he's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-capable. He can do whatever he wants. So clearly, if the Lord was seeking to, but not actually carrying out the sentence... The Lord didn't actually want Moses dead. He didn't fail at killing Moses. He didn't set out to say, I'm killing Moses today, and then somehow his mind got changed or he didn't get there in time or something. Instead, what the Lord is doing is giving Moses a real harsh taste of the severity of his shortcomings. He's trying to demonstrate to Moses just how seriously he takes breaking his covenant. Moses was never going to die here. But it sure seemed like it. Sometimes the Lord does things like that. He will afflict those who he loves. He will deal with us harshly in order to make a point. And the answer to why God didn't kill Moses is pure grace. God shows Moses grace throughout the entirety of this passage that is so bizarre and so weird for us to read. And we see that throughout all of it, grace is just this underlying current because if Moses had gotten what is coming to him, the passage would have been, and then the Lord showed up and killed Moses and picked another person to do what Moses was originally supposed to do. That's not what happens, right? And so what are, us, what are the key takeaways for us in this? How do we somehow apply the, the circumcision from Zipporah to, and the death of Moses to our lives? Well, there's a couple ways. Number one, our God is a gracious God. Even to the worst offenses, God wants to call us home through the ways that he deals with us, not exact some kind of revenge, right? God's not out to get you for your sin. It might seem like God is out to get you for your sin, 
that the reason God is out to get you is because he's pursuing you for holiness. That's the second point. God takes his holiness and our holiness very, very seriously. It's a life and death matter to him. If you think that you can be a Christian and just keep living however you want and just have like an evening prayer of forgiveness, you got another thing coming. The Lord wants your heart. He wants your mind. He wants your body. He wants your efforts. He wants your holy life. He wants you to be more and more holy and more and more like him as you grow in Christian maturity. And he will relentlessly push you to be that way. And sometimes he'll afflict you. Sometimes he'll even afflict you to the point of death. The Lord wants you holy. And he'll do anything in his power to make that holiness happen. If you think you can just kind of coast through, you've got another thing coming. Number three, God actively pushes us into holiness. You cannot be someone who doesn't pursue the holiness of God and continue to call yourself a Christian. Does that mean you need to be perfectly holy? No. You're going to fall short. You're going to mess up. You're going to be part of things that God doesn't want you to be a part of. You're going to slip in ways that God doesn't want you to slip. But what he wants you to do is to continue to pursue his holiness, and he will do every single thing. There was a fascinating interview that I um, was listening to this week. It's actually going out. The whole interview, the two-hour thing, is going out in the FYI tomorrow. But this isn't why. It's just a small part. The interview, um, a favorite podcaster of mine is interviewing all the times that he spoke to Tim Keller before he died. You know, and, and one of the times after the cancer diagnosis, you know, if you don't know Tim Keller, famous pastor, uh, probably one of the greatest uh, you know, religious minds of our time, uh, passed away a few weeks ago from, from stage four pancreatic cancer, and he was diagnosed with that at stage four. And they asked him, well, you know, why do you think the Lord did this to you? And his answer, without missing a beat, was, I think he did it to me for the sake of my holiness. He's like, you know, the, the first time you get, a, you get a reaction like that, you get a diagnosis like that, you're in shock and you're in mourning and you figure it out. But then you start to think, well, why, God, what are you doing? And you start to pray and you start to seek the Lord. And, and he said, I had a thought that came to me, and it was this. Why didn't the Lord just take me by getting hit by a bus? Why did he take me by giving me a diagnosis that gave me a couple of years of life? I think he lived for about like two and a half years or so, three years maybe, with his cancer diagnosis. Why? Why do that? And his answer was, because the Lord wanted my holiness, and I didn't quite have it yet. And what it did is it gave me a zeal and a fervor and a passion for three years to start to prioritize the things that really mattered. And I grew more in holiness in those three years before, you know, the, the, where I am now, before my passing that's eminent, than I did in the 60-plus years before. The Lord wanted my holiness. And Tim Keller is dancing with Jesus now. And he's holy. He's where God wanted him to be. Right? Now that's a hard thing to understand, but the Lord will do whatever he needs to do to push you into greater holiness. And in our temporary and temporal understanding of life that is such a, just a whisper, such a short breath in comparison to eternity, we sometimes see that as an incredibly harsh treatment. We say, well, God wanted to kill Moses. That's terrible. God is awful. I said, no, God wanted Moses to be holy because he was after the ultimate, not the temporary. Number four, you cannot be a hypocrite and effectively be a person that shares the gospel. If you're going to be out there and you're going to proclaim God's word, one of the prerequisites is that we live and seek to live lives of holiness. 
The gospel is hard enough to carry into the world. It's harder if you're a person who doesn't live it and tries to speak it into other people. If you're wondering, man, every time I seem to get the courage to share the gospel with somebody, they want nothing to do with it. There are a whole host of reasons for that. Maybe they're resistant. Maybe the Spirit's still at work in them. Well, maybe you're not living a life reflective of what actually would draw them to that, to that, to that Jesus. Maybe they look at you and go, if this is what it is, then I don't want any part of it. I'm not saying that's the reason, but maybe, right? The Lord wants us to pursue a holiness, and he will continue to grow us more and more. We'll never be perfect, but we'll get closer and closer and closer as we seek the Lord. The Lord wanted Moses to be holier before he started his public ministry, and the Lord wants us to be holier as we continue to grow in him. So the question is simply this, as we read a bizarre passage about foreskins and circumcision and blood and death, what parts of you does the Lord want to make more holy? And when we have affliction that hits us, rather than shaking our fists at the Lord, maybe start to ask yourself, what's God trying to do here? What's he trying to teach me? How's he trying to shape me? How's he trying to move me? What's he trying to push me towards or away from? And what you'll find, more often than not, is that the Lord is working in you, not against you. God's not out to get you. He's out to get you into his grasp and into his holy way of life and thinking about the world to come. Let's pray. God, we are grateful. We veer so easily from your ways. We're, we're not called sheep by accident, Lord. We veer and we're lost and we don't know where we're going and we don't know how to find our way back. And so, God, we praise you that you are a God who pursues us and is after our holiness who loves us enough to care, to chase, to grab. Lord, sometimes that grabbing feels harsh. Like when we yank a kid out of traffic to save their life, Lord, sometimes you just pull us in a way that is harsh and seems difficult and hard to understand and we want to be angry at you, but Lord, the truth is you're just after our holiness and our, you love us. And so we pray that we might be a people that pursue you above other things we would seek after you with our whole heart, that we would be looking to keep your covenant that you make with us, Lord. We aren't a people that are called to be circumcised. We're a people that are washed by the waters of baptism and cleansed by the blood of your Son. And so we walk in holiness by our gratefulness to the Lord, our acceptance that we can't fix ourselves, and our gratitude response of walking more and more into your likeness. We pray that you might equip us to do that through your spirit this week. We love you and praise you. And all people said, amen. amen.